Good morning, Saltbox. So I want to do something different as we, as we start this off. I want to look into the camera and say welcome. Um, I actually have the, the, uh, the feed right here. So do something for me if you're watching from home. Punch that little heart or punch your little uh, thumbs up or whatever. Show me that you're listening. Um, and then I, as we, I have a team that's trying to help me be a little bit more interactive. Oh, look, I got some. There we go. Very nice. Come on. There are some people out there listening. Very nice. Okay. Too fun. Okay. So one of the things we're trying to do is sort of integrate. We have an, a 9 a.m. Um, and 11 a.m. And then we have this 11 a.m. live. And we're attempting to, to uh, sort of integrate the whole thing a little better. So um, I'm going to do a combination of speaking to the room and speaking to the camera, but we're thrilled uh, that you're with us. So anyway, here we are. Um, I am in... Um, Whew. We, we are in a Christmas uh, series, and this Christmas series we've called um, Unlikely because there's a whole bunch of unlikely characters that God drug into the Christmas story. And, you know, if I, before we even jump into this thing, if I um, were to just sort of speak uh, from my own experience, um, Thanksgiving is a fabulous holiday. It's, it's actually one of my favorite. And one of the reasons it's my favorite is because what happens is it's probably one of the only American holidays where we tend to be looking outside ourselves. In other words, we're thankful uh, to God, right? Uh, we're thankful to our family, and then we're, we're really focused on giving back. And yet, there's this thing that happens post-Thanksgiving. So when I eat my Thanksgiving dinner, when you eat your Thanksgiving dinner, what are you afterwards? So now when I ask a question, I suppose I could even watch online uh, and see if anyone answers, or, or, or here. Uh, so, so what are you after Thanksgiving dinner? Tired? Why? Full. I'm stuffed. I'm absolutely, um, I'm stuffed to the brim. And I, and I walked in sort of this morning and into this Christmas season thinking that the great risk uh, of the American church right now is that we are satiated. In other words, we come off of Thanksgiving and we're stuffed to the brim, we're full, we're tired, and all of a sudden we get into Black Friday and then we get into Christmas decorations. I'm all for Christmas decorations. I'm all for what happens around Christmas. But what is happening in, in I think, the American church is this great risk that we're no longer hungry for the person of God. We're no longer hungry for the presence of King Jesus. We're, we're, we're satiated, we're full, and therefore we lose our first love. And I wanted to actually start this morning... Um, in, a, in a vulnerable posture, and I'm actually going to get on my knees and invite you to do the same. I want to pray. I want to start with a prayer. If you have knees that you can't get on them, that's okay. You can sit in your chair. You can stand up. But I want to actually ask that the Lord would make us a, a congregation, a group of people that is hungry, because there's something about the hunger in the heart of individual believers that I think the kingdom of heaven cannot resist. So let's just pray a very simple prayer. If you're online, I hope you will join us in your living room. Lord Jesus, we uh, would even confess that there is this risk of satiation, that we're overfilled. And Father, would you not allow us to lose our first love? Lord, would you not allow our love for you to grow cold? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So one of the things that I would in, just sort of say in introducing this is uh, Christmas 
um, is God's uh, self-disclosure. So, so Christmas is God's um, sort of full disclosure, and that self-disclosure or that full disclosure is actually Jesus of Nazareth. And the hardest thing, I think, is, is as we journey through this Christmas season is to maintain that sort of hungry posture. It, you know, what's, what's interesting is as a pastor, it's very difficult to preach uh, Christmas because it happens every, every year. And so there's similar topics, there's similar things that have to be talked about, there's similar things we have to look at, and the great risk is that we're sort of satiated and lulled to sleep, and we fail to fully grasp the magnificence of what Christmas is, and, and who Christmas is, and what this entire thing is about. So I'm going to attempt to breathe some life, really, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run my mouth, and we're going to ask that the Holy Spirit would breathe some life into this thing, and we're going to take a totally different look at Christmas. Christmas this morning. So we're actually going to start in Luke 1, um, and then we're going to flip over and we're going to do Matthew 11. And so Luke 1 is very much um, in keeping with the Christmas story. Matthew 11 is not, but we are going to break out of that mold. And who we're looking at today is actually John the Baptist. Um, and it is, uh, he, he is absolutely one of my favorites. So let's start here, Luke 1, and we're going to pick up in verse 11. And we'll see where we go uh, from here. Now, a little background before I start reading. Um, this is literally the Sabbath day at the temple. So on the Sabbath day in the temple, somebody is going in to actually make a sa- give a sacrifice to God. And there's a guy named Zechariah. And Zechariah is married to a lady named Elizabeth. And they've been unable to have children. They've literally been unable to conceive. And so there's a lot of pain around that. And Zechariah has prayed this prayer so many times, Lord, give us kids, that I think he's lost uh, hope. He's actually lost faith. He's lost heart that this could even happen. So here's where we pick up, verse 11 of Luke 1. Then an angel of the Lord, and we find out a little further down in the text that this is actually Gabriel. So then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, Zechariah, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Uh, May I say, I think that's probably the only accurate response when God moves into the room, when you encounter the Holy Spirit or when you encounter the presence of God. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. You know, I would actually um, throw out to us today, if you're like me, there's probably an element of you where you say prayers at points and you begin to go, will this prayer ever be heard? Say that with me. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you are to call him John. Now this is John the Baptist. He will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Now, something else you should note here is this is, a, this is the beginning of a cataclysmic shift um, that is actually happening uh, in this time of Jesus. So prior to this point, all the Old Testament prophets, and, and John is the last of a dying breed. He's like the last one of the Old Testament prophets. And so what, what has happened previously is the Spirit of God would come on an Old Testament prophet or an Old Testament king. And what we literally begin to see here is the Holy Spirit came in and filled John the Baptist even before he was born. 
In verse 16, many of the people of Israel will bring back to the Lord. Many of people of Israel he will bring back to the Lord. In verse 17, he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Anybody know what that's quoting? We just did it. It's Malachi 4. We literally just covered it. So we're, we're, um, he, he says, I will go on, uh, he, John, will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What's fascinating is uh, Zechariah doesn't believe Gabriel. So Gabriel actually strikes him mute. He can't speak until his son's born. And, you know, I, I just, this is not the essence of this message, but I think it's worth saying. Um, Christians tend, uh, across, you know, the American version of Christianity, um, tend to build a hierarchy of sin. So in other words, we go, oh, this, this is really bad. And this, that's really bad. And this, oh, I can't believe it. And we get real judgmental and kind of uppity, and we tend to think, well, if we don't do this, we don't do this, and we're doing pretty well. What's interesting here is what you see in this passage is um, Zechariah's doubt is serious enough that the angel Gabriel strikes him mute. So it's like, I think what I want to invite you to do as we open this, because we're about to look at John the Baptist, who has a moment of doubt. I want to invite you into some self-introspection and even allowing the Holy Spirit to sift not only your hearts individually, but our heart corporately as a church to go, are we carrying the hope and the faith of the Lord Jesus? Are we, um, are we effectively carrying that, or have we allowed some doubt to slip in? So here we go. Uh, I'm flipping back to um, Matthew 11, so I'm going to go to the left a little bit in my Bible. Uh, and, and let me also make a statement here. I love a paper Bible. I love a paper Bible because I highlight it, and I circle it, and I put dates in it, and there's nothing wrong with a scrolling Bible. That's okay, but there's something powerful about a paper Bible because I think the Lord wants, and I don't think, the Lord wants to speak to you in the Word, and when the God of creation enlivens your heart or mind with a verse, that's worth a circle. That's worth a date. That's worth a note. Because if you're, if you're like me, if God speaks and you don't write it down, I tend to walk away and go, was that really God? Ah, probably wasn't. But if I take a moment and jot it down, write it somewhere, make a note, I'm, I'm far more um, likely to walk that thing out, to actually heed that little note from the Lord. So I'm in... Uh, Matthew 11, and we're going to read verses 1, um, probably up through 18. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, and now let me tie this right in. Jesus finished instructing his 12 disciples. Why are we in a one-year Bible? Should I look online? <laughs> why, why do, as a pastor, why do I call us to be in a one-year Bible? So that Jesus can instruct us. That's why. That's literally, this is the Word of God. This is the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you also hear me talk about a five-year journal. It's this, it's this beautiful interactive place that I think God actually wants us as believers to sit with Him. I don't think it matters whether it's in the morning or the evening or the middle of the night or at, on your lunch break. I, I don't think it matters. But I think crafting and, and, and almost creating a space where you can turn and fix your attention and your gaze on Him, both in the Word. And for me, I use a five-year journal just because I can five years at a glance and I start seeing trends and things and I'm like, oh my goodness, look what the Holy Spirit's doing. Look what he's speaking. <clears throat> so after Jesus finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. 
when John, now John who? The Baptist, that's right, this is John the Baptist, heard from prison. Now, John's in prison, so let me, let me pause and give you some um, context here. Jesus was born, um, and when Jesus was born, remember the three wise men that came? This is the Christmas season, and we've all, you know, wise men are like in nativities around people's yards all over, which is great, nothing wrong with it, but we can lose the value or the, uh, where it's sort of coming from. So uh, Herod the Great um, was the king over, over Palestine and Judea at this time, and these three wise men came, and uh, Herod the Great is a sort of highly insecure, highly jealous, highly angry guy, and uh, he has actually is somewhat familiar with a book called Isaiah in the Old Testament that actually says the Messiah or the king is going to come from Bethlehem. So when these three wise men come and they say, hey, there's this king that's been born in Bethlehem, he gets all uptight and he issues this edict. Anybody remember what that was? He's going to have all of the babies killed. I mean, talk about insecure, talk about jealous, talk about heinous. So uh, literally, uh, he, he, and he's called Herod the Great because he, he rebuilt Solomon's temple, he rebuilt a bunch of aqueducts and a number of things around Israel, and then he has a son um, named, uh, named Herod um, Antipatus, and, and Herod Antipatus um, never gained kingship. So he ruled Galilee, but he was never a king. He sort of never lived up to his dad's kind of standard or whatever. And what's interesting about Herod Antipodus is Herod Antipodus takes, and hang with me here, he takes a trip to Rome, and while he's going to Rome, um, he uh, seduces his brother's wife. And his brother's wife eventually divorces her husband, and they get together. And now John the Baptist, now back to Matthew 11, John the Baptist finds out about what Antipodus has done, okay? And what do you think John the Baptist does? Now, let's think for just a minute. In the New Testament... Um, prophecy is edifying encouragement and comfort. And there, there is some exhortation that you see in the New Testament prophets and, and prophecies. Old Testament prophecy um, is, this, is this sort of linkage between God and his people, and a lot of times it has to do with um, uh, even issuing judgment or discipline and, and sort of speaking the word of God. So John the Baptist, Old Testament prophet, which we don't think of him that way because he's in the New Testament, right? But he's the last of a dying breed. So John the Baptist finds out what Herod Antipodus has done, and what's he do? He raises Cain. I mean, he is like, you are wrong, and he takes this public stand. He gets on his Twitter account, and he blasts it out. You are wrong. You are absolutely out of line. And Antipodus runs over and grabs John the Baptist, and he throws him in prison. And truth is, Antipodus, Herod Antipodus, wants to kill John the Baptist, but he's afraid to because the people know John's a prophet. That's where this thing sits. So John is literally at the end of his ministry. And I think the other thing that you would um, have to begin to understand or begin to get your head around is John has been um, a man of the open sky. He's, been, uh, he's lived his entire life outside, literally. He's, he has slept outside. He slept in caves. He slept by the Jordan River. He eats locusts. He eats honey. He wears camel hair. He's got this leather sash tied around him. He literally dresses like Elijah. I, I would venture that he smells like Elijah. Um, he, he is a man of the open sky. I mean, this is who he is. So what happens is uh, he gets arrested and he's thrown into jail at this place just right off the Dead Sea um, called Macarius. And he's in this sort of um, dungeon. And while he's there, I think he has a crisis of faith. So literally, he's given his entire life 
um, to this Messiah coming, uh, to this Jesus. He believes that Jesus is the Messiah, and, and yet he's having this crisis. So, so go back, verse 2. When John heard in prison what the who? Yep, Christ. What's in our translation? Messiah. Mine says Messiah. What the Messiah was doing, that's very intentional on Matthew's part, what the Messiah was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him. So John is sending his disciples to Jesus, and he's, he's saying, ask, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? In other words, John's saying, I'm about to die. I've like given it all. I've given my entire life for this thing. I'm wearing stinking camel hair. I'm stuck in a prison now. I've lived on locusts and honey. I've like tried to pave the way, and are you the one? I'm having a total crisis of faith. I'm having this like sort of meltdown in prison, and I would go so far as to say he is having a full, oh my goodness, and I think in order to understand probably fully why John is having a crisis of faith, you'd have to scroll back a couple of chapters, and you can make a note about this, but it's in Matthew 3, I believe. Matthew 3, verse 11, says this. Um, this is John talking. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, um, when I was younger, um, I wanted to backpack a trail in western, uh, the western U.S. called the Continental Divide Trail. And it literally runs the Rocky Mountains. And what's fascinating about this trail is um, if a drop of rain falls a foot to the right of that Continental Divide, does anyone know what ocean it goes to? So, so east. If it falls a foot east of that continental divide, what ocean does it go to? Atlantic. If it falls a foot to the west of that continental divide, what ocean does it go to? Pacific. That, that continental divide literally divides all the water that comes down. It's a watershed point, and, and the water splits and goes to two different oceans. John the Baptist is a watershed point. He is literally the fulcrum point. He is, he is the, the last of this Old Testament prophet, and he becomes sort of a signpost um, ushering in the presence and person of Jesus. And so he is, he is in some ways talking um, uh, about what he probably doesn't fully uh, know, but he's literally saying um, his expectation of Jesus, let's, let's say it like this, his expectation of Jesus is accurate, but it's only accurate in part. And here's what I mean. He just, as we just read in Matthew 3, his perception is Jesus is going to come with this winnowing fork. And a winnowing fork is like an old school pitchfork. It's like it's wood and it's wide and it's got a handle. And you would take wheat and you would put wheat on this big threshing floor and you'd pull a big piece of stone or concrete behind a donkey and you'd drag the stone or, or concrete over um, the wheat and it would sort of crush and break down the wheat, and then you'd come in this with this big winnowing fork, and you'd lift the winnow, you'd lift all this wheat that's now been crushed, and you'd throw it into the air. And what would happen is any little breeze would blow the chaff away, which is the worthless stuff, and then the good stuff, the wheat, would fall back down to the ground. And so a person would literally winnow the wheat after it's been sort of crushed. So you'd stand there and you would just throw it in the air until all you have left is good wheat. And so what John is literally expecting um, is, is he is expecting that Jesus would come and that Jesus would winnow. In other words, Jesus would separate um, the good wheat from the chaff. In other words, he he is, is uh, John is uh, preaching a gospel of repentance. 
and he expects that Jesus is coming in that same way. Now, this is very hard because John is like, um, he is limited to, to what he sees and what he has seen. He's limited to the past, and yet he's a herald um, of the future. So in, in some ways, this reminds me almost of Moses in the Old Testament. Remember, go back and think with me if you know the story of Exodus. If you don't, I'd encourage you to read it. But here's what happened. Moses is sent to deliver the people from Egypt, right? He delivers the people. He goes and gets uh, the Ten Commandments. He gets um, the, the laws of God, the Levitical laws. And then he comes all the way up to the promised land, and he cannot go in. So he's pointing to something in the future that, that God has promised and God has called his people to, but Moses never crosses over into that promised land. Well, John's the same way. John's the last of this Old Testament prophet. He's the last of this breed, and he is literally preaching of something of which he knows not. I mean, it's, it's a really challenging place. He is a signpost telling what's coming, but he hasn't seen it. And so his perception is that God's going to take this big winnowing fork, Jesus is going to take this winnowing fork, and he's going to separate everyone. And what <clears throat> he does not understand, because he's this fulcrum point, is that on the hill we call Golgotha, or Calvary, Christ Jesus went and, what did he do? He died. He died. He was killed. And what we began to see in the life of Jesus is that he gave it all. And so Jesus introduces this cataclysmic shift. And all of a sudden, the gospel is no longer just about repentance and get right with a holy and righteous God. All of a sudden, Jesus introduces the gospel of love. And so there's this cataclysmic sort of continental divide thing in the, in the revelation of God in the scriptures. And from this point forward, Jesus is now introducing a gospel of love, a gospel of peace, a gospel of joy. And John is literally expecting him to come in, in, in judgment. And he's John's right, but not fully. And so Jesus comes and he begins to introduce this gospel of, of love. He begins to introduce this gospel of peace. And suddenly John's in prison and these walls are like closing in on him. He's like dying. And I think he's going, have I given it all for nothing? Is this all, did I just give it all in vain? Is this just all worthless? Why did I, why have I given my whole life? Are you really the Messiah? So when John heard in prison, verse 2, what the Messiah was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? If there's a point that I would probably make or say this morning, it's that the power of evil is not going to be defeated by irresistible might or irresistible power, but rather by unanswerable love. That's what Jesus introduces absolute, radical, mind-boggling, unanswerable love. And John is sitting in his cell going, where's the winnowing fork? Where's the judgment? Why is this not looking like I thought it would look? And look how Jesus answers. Jesus replies, so you've got to understand, Jesus is literally here teaching. His disciples are there. There's probably a huge crowd gathered around him. John's disciples roll up and interrupt him. He pauses his preach. He turns around and he talks to John's disciples. And he, he gives them what I would actually propose to you is the most um, sort of acid of tests, if you'll let me use that language. The most acid of tests, which he says, um, go back and tell John what I'm doing. Not what I'm saying. I would actually say to you this morning that the way we live our lives, what we're actually doing is far more important than what we 
say. Our words are important, but it's easy to give lip service to God and then have a heart or a life that's far from it. So I love that what Jesus says is he literally says, verse 4, go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. Now, verse 5, here we go. The blind receive sight. Now remember, Jesus is in front of this big crowd and he's telling these disciples, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And then he goes, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. That's a crazy verse. We'll talk about that in just a second. Now, here's what you may not know, and I think it's, it, you've got to pause here to understand um, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, this man of the open sky, the man that's lived outside, this wild, rough-hewn, I'm sure he had fire in his eyes and he was terrifying to even get near, he, he probably spent some time uh, at a place called Qumran, which is with a group uh, called the Essenes down by the Dead Sea. And you may or may not know this, but the Dead Sea Scrolls, the entire book of Isaiah, was translated and retranslated and written and rewritten by this group. And John probably spent some time um, with them writing out the book of Isaiah. Now, why that's important is because Jesus, you may or may not know this, but Jesus, in his answer, what he just said, remember he said, he, John's disciples roll up and he says, not what am I, listen to what I'm saying. He says, go back and tell John what I'm doing. And, in, in, and what he quotes then is Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, which says, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he quotes Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, then will the eyes of the blind be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like deer, and the mute's tongues will shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness. John the Baptist would have had the book of Isaiah memorized frontwards and backwards, backwards and frontwards. So literally, what Jesus' Jesus's answer is uh, tailored specifically for John. In other words, uh, Jesus is literally quoting and giving John what he needs to fully grasp. And Jesus is saying unequivocally here, I am the Messiah. I am the one who was prophesied. I am the one who was fulfilling the entirety of the Old Testament scripture. I am the one who in this Christmas season now is the one who has come to fulfill. I am the one whom you were waiting on. And John, sort of this uh, signpost, is sitting there in prison and, and probably can't even um, comprehend because it's, it's not just a gospel of repentance, which isn't the full gospel. It's now a gospel of love, which is the full gospel. It's now a gospel of forgiveness. It's now a gospel of peace. And then when Jesus says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me, I think what he's saying in that moment to John is, John, my brother, my cousin, literally, don't give up. Don't give up. Some of you probably need to hear that this morning. You haven't given your life in vain. You haven't run the race in vain. He's saying, John, look at what is happening. I am the one who was foretold. I am him. I am the Messiah. Don't give up. Verse 7, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. This is one of the only places 
that you get Jesus teaching, and someone interrupts him, John's disciples, and then they, he gives them a message, they go, and then Jesus uh, does a sermon on somebody. It's very rare. I mean, it's just, it's just highly unusual, but let's, let's look at what he says about John the Baptist. So as, John, as John's disciples were walking away, uh, Jesus began to speak to the crowd that had gathered about John. And here's what he said. Why did you go in the wilderness? What did you go in the wilderness to see? Did you go to see a reed swayed by the wind? If you've ever been to Israel, the rivers there are lined with, anybody guess? Reeds. So literally what Jesus is saying is, you guys hightailed it like multiple days of journeying, either on your donkey or on, you know, your own two feet, way out in the wilderness. And did you go to see something that was normal? No, no, no. So again, this is that rabbinic style where he's going to ask questions. He's not telling you. He's saying, did you go out to see something that was normal? And obviously the answer is no. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? Remember what the, the uh, Elijah outfit that John the Baptist is literally wearing? No, those who wear fine clothes are where? King's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. Now, this next passage, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. What's that? Anybody know where that's from? Malachi 3.1. Malachi 3.1. Jesus, uh, if, you, if you look at the person of Jesus, if you look at what he said um, he always uses the Bible to interpret the Bible. He uses the Bible to interpret God. Um, he answers anything he faces with the Bible. So that's why we literally, you, you'll hear me say things like, you can only use Scripture to interpret Scripture. R remember when Satan came and tempted Jesus. Jesus answered each of the temptations with Scripture. It, it, only God um, can interpret God. Uh, only God can validate Jesus. So he, he literally then, Jesus is quoting Malachi 3.1, which all the people would have known, right? The people knew Malachi. They knew that Old Testament. Prepare your way before me. And then he goes on to say, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now this is crazy. Among those born of women, there is not one who is greater than John the Baptist. Now, what's he say next? Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I've always puzzled over that. How can no one be greater and yet he who is least? So, go back to the Continental Divide. John is this uh, fulcrum point in the revelation and history of God. And so, John is bringing revelation about who God is. He's this signpost foretelling of the coming of a Messiah, foretelling about a gospel of love of which he does not comprehend and does not understand. And, and what Jesus is literally saying is, of all the Old Testament prophets, the greatest is John the Baptist. But when you factor in the cross of Calvary, the hill of Golgotha, the gospel of love that Jesus introduces, the most baby Christian who has just surrendered their life to Jesus is actually understanding this Yahweh God um, in fullness, not just an Old Testament version, but a New Testament fullness, a baby Christian because of Golgotha, because of Calvary, because of Jesus, who introduced at this fulcrum point the gospel of love, a baby Christian can now understand and even be greater than John the Baptist. In other words, what's coming is huge. 
That's what Jesus is saying. Y'all don't even understand because I'm getting ready to go to this hill called Golgotha and I'm going to die and I'm going to give my life and yet I am going to rise from the dead. I am going to overcome hell. I'm going to beat death. I'm going to beat sin. I'm going to be raised up and I'm going to introduce this, this gospel of love that spans the entirety of the revelation of God from Genesis to Revelation. And you, you literally get this idea that as great as John the Baptist is, those who come after him, which includes us, have this opportunity to walk into the fullness of revelation of this gospel of love that makes us greater than him. It's like, oh. I think another just thing to note here as we continue to journey through Matthew 11 is God validates Jesus. So Father God, Yahweh God validates Jesus in two ways. The fulfillment of his word, which is why Jesus is quoting the Old Testament prophets, and by the display of his power. In other words, the miraculous and the supernatural are, are present. And yet I would actually say um, to you and, and to us, if you have a willfully hard heart, um, the present of the miraculous or the supernatural is not going to change it. Otherwise, the Pharisees would have all been powerful believers, Right? Because they all saw it all. Verse 11, I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. This is really hard. That's a hard passage. And I want to see if I can bring full uh, sort of understanding, full-orbed understanding for you. Verse 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, here Jesus is quoting Malachi again. He is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, what is Jesus saying? From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence. And violent people have been raiding it. Up till this point, go back to that fulcrum, up till this point, the kingdom of God has been uh, what John is preaching. It's a, it's a gospel that is more verbal in the areas of repentance. Um, it's it's a, a line with the Mosaic law. It's a, a line with the, um, the, 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 the Ten Commandments. And what Jesus now begins to do is the new warfare, in other words, the new violence, if you will, uh, is now no longer a, a gospel of judgment. No, 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 now it's the gospel of love. If you want to um, engage in warfare in your home, in your marriage, with your kids, with your neighbors, how do you do it post-Jesus? Love. See, that's the new warfare. It's the new way of even fighting. It's the new language of the kingdom of God is the law of love. It is, it, it, this is, it's no longer uh, we're standing up preaching judgment. No, no, no. Is judgment part of it? Yes. Will Jesus return with that winnowing fork one day and separate the wheat from the chicken? Yes, he will. And we can't omit that. But it is, it is the love of God. It's the fulcrum point at this point in history when Christ Jesus comes and he introduces a love gospel that John cannot understand. Like John's sitting in prison going, you do not look like the Messiah that I thought you would look like, and I don't like it. How many of us do that in our lives? We look at what God's doing and go, I don't like it. Therefore, it must not be God. 
What Jesus is saying here is the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. He's literally taking a look at the Old Testament and then he's shifting and go, this is the new mode of warfare. It is love. How do you treat your enemies? Love them. How do you treat those who persecute you? Pray for them. How do you treat those who hate you? Love them. What do you do when you're persecuted or hated on? You celebrate. Yay! I mean, come on, is all that not contrary to the way we think and the way we feel as humans? I mean, that's like absolutely against everything, and yet that's what Christ Jesus is ushering in. He's literally ushering in. The power of the gospel is forgiveness. The power of the gospel is grace. The power of the gospel is love, and it doesn't omit this repentance and this other part. It just fully encompasses it, and for the first time, the revelation of God is complete in the person of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is God's full disclosure. Christmas, and then the following Easter, is God's full disclosure, because Jesus is fully revealed. I would say to you this morning that the supreme argument for Christ is not intellectual debate or great apologetics, although both of those are good, but the life-changing power of his love. And that was Jesus' answer to John. Look at the life-changing power that my love is doing in the lives of these people, fulfilling the Old Testament. I was uh, driving with Amelia, our three-year-old, the other day. I was in my truck, and I'm driving, and she sits in her, I got a little seat, and I got a four-door truck, and her little seat is like right over my shoulder, and we're talking, and um, I had my, um, I've got a playlist that I sometimes worship to in the morning on my phone. And uh, this song by Shane and Shane came on, Amazing Grace. And here's what you don't know is when I've put all our kids to bed through the entirety of all of their growing up, um, I will often sing Amazing Grace. I love that song. And I have a terrible voice, poor, my poor kids. But we're sitting there driving down the road, and Shane and Shane, Amazing Grace comes on, and Amelia's like, Dada, Dada, that's our song. Dada, that's what you sing at night. And she's like, Dada, Dada, turn it up, turn it up. And so I turned it up, and she's like, Dada, sing. And so I'm, I'm singing at the top of my lungs, and she's singing, and we're sitting there, and I got tears like rolling down my face. And she's like, when it ended, she's like, play it again, Dada, play it again, Dada. We played it again three or four times. The power of the gospel is the gospel of love. Love changes everything. Love is the new mode of warfare. Love is what conquers all. And this Jesus came not obliterating the Old Testament, fulfilling it, extending John's message, which is a message of repentance, to include a gospel of love. And he fully revealed himself in this Christmas and Easter season. This is God's full disclosure. If we go on in verse 13, it says, For all the prophets and all the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept that he is the Elijah who was to come, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Verse 16, To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces, calling out. And then he says, We played a pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. I love this. And they say he has a demon. And the Son of Man, Jesus, came eating and drinking. God is always uh, about, Jesus is always about breaking the uh, rules that 
men and women put into place. John the Baptist came not drinking. Wine is what that's talking about. Jesus came drinking wine. See, what God is interested in is our hearts. He's not interested in our performance. He's not interested in in an external religion where you clean things up. No, no, no. He's actually interested in in your heart being transformed. And as your heart is more transformed, as you're more impacted and filled with his love, that love can't help but rise up and overflow. And I assure you, if you've drunk deeply of the love of God and the forgiveness of God in this gospel of love, you will never be the same. You will change. God is interested in our hearts, and my prayer even for this church, for me, for our family, would be, oh Lord, would you let us be a people who doesn't lose our first love, whose hearts are so enamored and enraptured with who you are, that we are not satiated and asleep at the wheel, but that we are a group of people who is hungry in the name of Jesus. So God, John knew the holiness of God. John knew the justice of God. Uh, John declared the righteousness of God. But positionally in history, John lacked one thing. He could not understand the love of God. He had not seen Golgotha. He had not seen Calvary. He had not seen Jesus lay it all down. He had not encountered the love of God. And and on, on that side of the cross, all you had was a gospel of repentance. And Jesus came and institutes this gospel of love. John was literally making way for a light that he would never see. John didn't get to cross over into that promised land. He was actually beheaded a few chapters later. Herod ended up cutting off his head and putting it on a platter at a big party. And everybody laughed. And heaven celebrated because one of the greats came home. But John did not get to understand the gospel of love that we get to understand. And it says right there that we are greater than him because of our proximity to the very love of Jesus. I have a couple questions for you and we're going to head into communion. Worship team, would you come back up and play for us? If you're at home, I want to invite you um, to grab, if you have some crackers or you have some bread, grab it and celebrate communion with us. We're using grape juice this morning, so if you have some grape juice, that would be great. If you don't, grab what you do have and celebrate uh, this Lord's Supper with us. As we, as we come to an end on this sort of unlikely series and we look about this strange man, John the Baptist, I have a, just a couple of questions for you. Have the walls of whatever prison you're in clouded your vision? Have the things in your life gotten you to the point where you've lost hope, where you've lost heart, where you're all of a sudden unsure like John? John was a man of the open sky and he found himself caught and trapped in this prison. I'd invite you to let the Holy Spirit even sift your own heart and even extend what a prison could mean. Could it be a health issue? Yes. Could it be a handicapped or a mental thing? Yes. Could it be relational pain, pain with kids, 
loss of a child or a loved one, divorce, something you've lived through. Any of those things can become a prison for us where suddenly we are doubting the love of God. The second thing that I would invite you to think about is have you moved in and through John's gospel of repentance and embrace Jesus' gospel of love, which now extends. And the entirety of the Old and the New Testament come together. And Christmas is about celebrating this King Jesus who gave it all in love. If you're at home, take that bread out, take that juice out. If you're here with us, we're going to serve you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he sat with his 12 disciples, one of whom was about to betray him. He took a loaf of bread in his hands and he, he tore the loaf. And he said, this is my body given for you. And the disciples were like John at that moment. They couldn't see Calvary. They couldn't see Golgotha. They couldn't see his death. They couldn't see his resurrection. And they just listened as Jesus literally became the bread of life right before their eyes. And then Jesus took a pitcher of wine. We have grape juice today. But he literally poured out the wine. He said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, the new covenant, which is the gospel of love. It's poured out for you and for me. Every time you take of this, take of these elements and do so remembering what I've done, what I've completed, what I've finished, what I've given, and then do it so that you could be set free of whatever prison you find yourself in today. Lord Jesus, as we celebrate with these common elements, would you set them apart? Father, my sense as we minister today is that there's people in this room and probably people watching online that have areas in their lives that feel like prisons. And when we have areas that feel like prisons, Holy Spirit, you know as well as every one of us that even the greats like John the Baptist reach a point where they go, have I given it all in vain? Is this, are you even real? And Father, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we celebrate communion on this Sunday morning at the beginning of this Advent season, Holy Spirit, would you impact our hearts and lives? Would you interact with us in such a way that you refill us and refuel us with that rock-solid faith and hope and love? In the name of Jesus, we pray. If you're at home, I'm going to turn my microphone off for just a minute. We're going to serve communion in this room. If you're at home, would you hold the elements with us? We'll all hold them together, and then we'll take it together in just a minute. If you all will lead us in some worship. Wherever you are, God's here with us, and he is calling each of us into a new understanding of this gospel of love.
here with us in person, we have these funny little COVID safe Lord's Supper containers, and I don't like them. Don't let a package that you don't like keep you from embracing the love of this Jesus. Take and eat, remembering the price he paid, the death he died, and the resurrection he experienced on our behalf. And appropriate into your own life the reality, the resurrection power of Jesus into whatever Makarios-type prison cell you find yourself today. Take and eat and drink in remembrance of him. sing that one more time and I'll close this after that in prayer. or online and you've never given your heart to this King Jesus. Perhaps you've never seen or understood this gospel of love. I'm looking at our live feed right now and I'm not going to do a blanket prayer this morning, but if you're here or you're there and you want to meet with this Jesus, just make a note right here. If you want to talk to one of us, and either I will or one of our elders will give you a call. Christmas is not about trees and lights and gifts. Those are beautiful things. But Christmas is about this God who gave it all. Who quenched all of that judgment that John preached about at Calvary, at Golgotha, the hill on which he died. And our prayer for you as you go from this place, whether you're online or whether you're here in person, is that you would go with an increased revelation of the love of a holy God and an increased revelation of the person 
of the Holy Spirit. Next week, we'll be, God willing, here at 9 and 11 a.m. at the Hannah Block Center for in-person services. We'll be online at 11 a.m. if you need to stay home and stay safe that way. But as we enter into this Christmas season, go asking Jesus to give you a greater revelation of his love and that you could become a more powerful messenger of his love to everyone in your life. We love you and bless you in the name of Jesus.